Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. My name is Nathan. Glad to see you here. Uh, we had a great Sunday last Sunday at Heritage Church. We joined up and gathered with them together. If you were here, I, I hope that, um, well, I actually I found out that our, our host was not, so I am sorry if you came here and we weren't here, but um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes we plan things well and still still doesn't work out. Um, so glad that you're here today. If you're on the aisle and have a basket underneath your chair, would you grab that and pass it down? Would love to have um, you share your contact information if you'd like to hand it off. Also, if you'd like a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll hand that to you. One of our ushers will give that to you. Friends, our hope every time we gather, especially um, in the midst of really busy seasons like the summer, is that there, this will be more than just an instructional time. This will be more than just a community time. But this will actually be a place and a time where we encounter the presence of God. So we've been praying all week and preparing for this gathering in hopes that all that we bring to this place um, could be laid before the Lord and we could actually encounter the presence of God in the context of our, of our realities. So I'm super excited today to have Steve Lindsay and sharing with us. Uh, Stephen, tell us a little bit about yourself. When, was, uh, when did you guys start coming to Emmaus? I don't remember. I think exactly. I do remember that it was the first men's retreat and I've been to each one after that. So that tends to be my marker of how long we've been here. There were moments when we weren't here. You invited us back, called me about the men's retreat, and uh, been back ever since. So. Great. Yeah, so five or yeah. six years. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell, you're married to Patty. Tell us a little bit about how you serve here in the church. Patty's an usherette. An usherette. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, so she's one of the ushers. I serve on the communion team, and I'm a board member this year. And um, Great. Yeah. Great. And uh, you have boys? have two boys, two older sons. Uh, one's 29, one's 23. They moved to Nashville about a year and a half ago. They just came back this week to visit. So it was good to see them. And uh, it's a long ways to move. <laughs> so. so they were just home last week? They were. They were. So we made a good visit. So you have adult children yes. that come home. Yes. And, and is that kind of like having adults in the house? Or does that all go sort of retro back to like nine and 13 or something like that and they're still arguing over the peanut butter and things like that yeah there were there were moments like that yeah. i think yeah where they were fighting and um and and they live together so i think sometimes they just get tired of each other but <laughs> it was funny because on monday last monday we went and saw um inside out so it was funny that we all went to see a animated movie together yeah <laughs> there you go you should uh like sleep in the living room together and, and camp out. I'm uh, so glad uh, <laughs> Stephen's here. I hope that um, you will open your hearts to this message. Steve's got a great perspective on the topic of today, and I'm just super excited about uh, what he'll share with us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for Stephen. I pray that you would fill his heart and mind with clarity, that you would give us the grace we need to engage in challenging issues, and that we could embrace your word in light of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. So this is a prop. If I go to drink this, yell something out, because I'm not supposed to drink that. I can drink this one, though. 
So I'm an introvert by nature, so this is really weird for me to be up in front of people speaking, but it's what I do for a living, so that seems weird too. Um, I want to introduce to you a little bit about who I am and my background, and then that will make sense for the message. Um, I typically don't read what I'm about to, when I present to people. Um, that's a little awkward, but I've been making changes to my message um, up to last night. Um, so that's why I'm going to have to hold on to this and keep it fairly close to me. Nathan's actually going to be working the uh, slides, so we'll see how well we're connected here. This will be good. Um, so, me, for most of my life, I've worked with um, deeply wounded children. Um, over 30 years ago, I met my wife in a psychiatric hospital. She was a nurse, and I was... Well, I'll let you fill in the blank, and you can decide what I was. Well, I was a psychiatric aide working um, with teenagers in Southern California. Um, Patty was a follower of Christ, and I was not. But through her abil ability to allow God to shine through her, I was so attracted to him that I gave my life to him. And I eventually married Patty. I continued working with young people in a variety of settings, and most recently, I worked for the past 18 years with 6 to 20-year-olds in a residential setting. Just that age group alone should kind of cause some sadness to think that there are 6-year-olds that are placed in residential facilities. These are some of our state's most emotionally wounded and hurting children, and in spite of their clinical diagnosis, I came to see them all as suffering in some way oftentimes because of the neglect or some profound abuse that they experienced. I eventually saw my role change in my work. Um, I was there to give them hope, to relieve their suffering in any way possible. After 18 years, I was, um, unfortunately, I thought at the time, I was laid off along with 140 other of my coworkers. And it wasn't until this happened that I was I was able to see how ragged my own troubled heart had become. And now I travel the country doing a five-day training for those doing direct care with potentially aggressive or violent people. Um, so these are people that work in a variety of settings like schools and hospitals and residential programs. Um, so it's a five-day training I do, eight hours a day. So this might take a while. <laughs> you might as well settle in. Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And soon afterwards, he said, let not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So I've been asking people what this means to them, and I've heard a variety of responses. It seems as if he's told his disciples and us to do something that is nearly impossible, to be the opposite of what we feel. And throughout this message, I, I want you to try to think, if you heard these words, what would they mean to you? What do they mean to you now? And how do you hear those words spoken? Let me ask you, do you sometimes have a troubled heart? Anybody in here? Anybody this morning, a troubled heart? And do you sometimes have fear? 
some possible causes of a troubled heart. These are just some. I think might be our work, our families, the news, if you listen to the news at all, talk radio, electronic devices, technology, money or a lack of, health issues, and relationship struggles. I want to look at some psalms today. I want to um, look at some stories from Scripture, and I want to tell you some stories from my own life that might help us understand what our response might be to a troubled heart. And this is merely my reflection. There is so much that Jesus says about a troubled heart that there's no way it can be um, crammed into this one message. One person has described troubled heart or the idea of trouble as agitated water moving quickly. So if you imagine it like this. At some points during the day, maybe you get stirred up and that's how you begin to view things just through this cloud and you're not sure exactly what's going on. Have any of you been in a car when it overheated? Can I see your hands? Just awesome. I'm in good company. We'll come back to that. So, as I said, I've worked with, um, with children for many, many years who have been physically and emotionally abused or traumatized in some way, and the one thing we were trying to do to help them um, was to help them manage their emotions. They all seemed to have troubled hearts. Many were actually controlled by whatever emotion they were feeling, and often it was anger, despair, shame, and self-hatred. The trauma of each of their lives played like a video on repeat, except it would get worse with each replay. And I think some of you might know what that experience is like. The mind often runs wild chasing every thought and feeling to the point of causing us to feel separated from the one who loves us and calls us his beloved. So we started training our staff and then our children how to sit and notice what they were feeling. No matter what they were feeling. So just to become aware of their feelings was a huge first step. This involved a lot of sitting. Sitting quietly and noticing and working through feelings, which is scary stuff, especially if you've had a difficult, painful past. Sitting with your feelings is the last thing that you want to do. As I mentioned, on Monday we saw the movie Inside Out. Um, took my two boys to see that. Um, and it's a wonderful movie. It's just... Um, I know some of you have seen it, too. Can I see your hands? Who have seen that movie? Awesome. So you, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, we loved it. And I, and I, I kept thinking this is going to be so helpful with helping people, oftentimes maybe children who have been hurt, to learn about their emotions and how it affects their memories. Um, it's such a, a clever story. So it's... it's the story um, of an 11-year-old girl named Riley. And Riley's emotions of anger, fear, disgust, and sadness and joy work at the control center, the headquarters of Riley. Um, they work really hard 
to help this 11-year-old girl navigate um, the troubles of her life. But this leaves Riley under the control of her emotions. And that's what I, I left thinking the night after I saw it was, that's not quite how we were created to be, having our emotions at the control center. So it might be accurate for an 11-year-old, but I don't think it's how we're supposed to live beyond our childhood. So in my work, I was being trained by a Buddhist, and I eventually spoke to my spiritual director about the intersection of my Christian faith and all the meditation in which I was participating. He assured me that the Buddhists have nothing on Christians when it comes to meditation, and the Old Testament records a deep history of it. I raised this question to him in late June of 2012, just before I flew to Guatemala for two weeks. It was part of my residency with my graduate program um, in spiritual formation. He spoke to me about the desert fathers of our Christian faith, writing about meditation and the idea of waking up. So this is the idea of being alert, watchful, or aware. Because often we live our lives in a state of forgetfulness. That we, you know, this is the story of Israel. They forget where they came from, and we do too. So I learned that sitting or walking in silence can help me let go of all the distractions in my life, like water settling, things that conspire to keep me numb and asleep. And there's often so much swirling around in my head every day that I'm not even aware of what I'm feeling, but I'm reacting from those feelings. I can easily live from my worried, troubled heart. I went back and pulled up my journal from that trip when I was flying to Guatemala, and that day when I was in flight to Guatemala, this was heavily, heavily on my mind, and I wrote, Awake, O sleeper. As it says in Isaiah 26, 19, You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. I also wrote in my journal on my flight, I desire to live in your presence, Father. Everything seems to be pointing to awareness, compassion, presence, living from my heart, slowing, grace, mercy, intentionally looking, awakening to the presence of God, and living from my heart. For some reason, I wrote that twice. It must have been a big deal for me. Awake, O sleeper, indeed. That was on my heart so heavily. I went to Guatemala with, with this idea of, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I'm going to meet people I haven't met before. I'm in a different place. I, I wasn't a big traveler at that time. And, and so I just wanted to see where God was going to show up and be open to that. When I got to Guatemala, I met my roommate for the first time. We had been corresponding online, but it was the first time we actually met. And right away, he wanted to go out into Guatemala City and explore. So we had some time, and we just walked around, and we found a coffee shop. Um, it's like their, Guatemala's version of Starbucks. It, was, it looked like it, but there were only two, so Starbucks has that on them. Um, it was about two blocks from where we were meeting, and so every morning we would get up, 
walk to this coffee shop, have coffee, walk back to our um, uh, residency, and be ready for the morning. And then on Sunday, July 2nd of 2012, we walked there, except something was different. The parking lot was empty. There was no one around. So I went to the front door. The door was shut. It was locked. Nobody was inside. And it was closed because it was Sunday. And my roommate um, is fluent in Spanish, and he says to me, that's interesting. And I said, what? And he said, what it says on the door. So for the first time that we, since we had been coming there, the front door was shut. And so we weren't able to see what was on the front door. But now that it was closed, we could see their motto was written across the front of the door. And so I said, well, read it to me because I don't know what it says. And he says, it's written, the day is yours. Wake up. I, I thought, wow, from Northern California, my spiritual director's talking to me about waking up. And I come to Guatemala City and go to a random coffee shop, and it's written on their door. It felt like God was trying to get my attention about this. Martin Baird has written that our thoughts, our sensations, and our emotions are all stunning patterns on the holy mountain of God. But we are not the weather. We are the mountain. Weather is happening, delightful sunshine, dull sky, or destructive storm. This is undeniable. But we are not the weather. The weather passes. Psalm 125 verse 1 says, Whoever trusts in the Lord is like Mount Zion, unshakable. It stands forever. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, in verse 25, I am laid low in the dust. Verse 28 says, My soul is weary with sorrow. Do some of you know that? Do you know that feeling? That it feels like you're in the dust? That your soul is weary with sorrow? And then something happens in verse 32 because he writes, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Something changed. It sounds a lot like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, laid low in the dust, weary souls, and then something happens, like waking up to the reality of God, and they begin running with free hearts, or as Henry Nouwen says, hearts on fire. So I want to look at what was happening before Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled, and then we're going to look at what happens after that. So we'll have some context. And I'm just going to go through this really quickly. Um, but it, it's the Last Supper. So he washes the disciples' feet. He predicts his betrayal. He says, I will be with you only a little longer, and you will look for me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He gives them a new command to love one another as I have loved you. Peter asks, where are you going? And Jesus answers, you can't follow now, later. And Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says something to the effect of, you're going to deny me soon, and you're going to do it repeatedly. And then Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I want you to put yourself in that room. I want you to 
maybe feel what the disciples were feeling and see if you can see Jesus saying that. Jesus then starts to talk to them about believing in God, and Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me? And then he promises the Holy Spirit, and he says, obey my commands. And then Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. How would you hear those words? I think sometimes we read these words and we just pass over them and go, well, that's impossible. Next, like we have a do not be troubled switch. You know, we just flick that and everything's good. It almost sounds like an impossibility. In John 16, Jesus begins, he continues to talk to them about what's going to happen. And in chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus says, because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. So he must have seen something from them in their posture, in their faces. I imagine they were hearing these words and they put their heads down or they put their faces in their hands and they were like feeling, oh my gosh, this is going to be terrible, the things he's talking about. Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit, the counselor. And in verse 20, he says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And in verse 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. And thankfully, that statement doesn't end there. Because he goes on and says, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. It's interesting that Jesus is telling them not to have a troubled heart. And then we'll see what happens after that. This statement that he says, take heart, that he's overcome the world, that's good news right there. It's our peace, our shalom, our wholeness is found in him. It's not found somewhere else. It's not found in someone else. It's found in him. In Matthew 26, Matthew records that Jesus says to his disciples, you all are going to fall away. Can you imagine Jesus saying to all of us, you're all going to fall away. It's about to happen. So he takes them out to pray. Which I think is interesting. They're in the upper room. They're having the Last Supper. So he's washing their feet. He's prophesying over them. He's praying over them. And then they go pray. Isn't that interesting? It's like we probably would have thought, well, this has been a good couple hours. Now what? He takes them out to pray. So he takes them out. He takes three of them a little bit further away from the group. He takes Peter and James and John. And he says, stay here. And then he goes a little bit further. And he says to them, or the scripture says in verse 37 of Matthew 26, that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Which is so interesting. He just told them not to have troubled hearts. And he goes out and now he reveals to them 
my soul is troubled to the point of death. And he says, stay here and keep watch with me. And then he went a little further. This was his practice to go alone, to seek solitude. And there's that word watch. He was telling them to stay alert. He wasn't just talking about sleep. But when he returns, he finds them asleep. In verse 41, Jesus tells them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And I've often wondered what that meant. What temptation was he talking about? When he rose from prayer, he went back and he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Do any of you know that feeling? You're so tired from sorrow and sadness that you just want to sleep? That it's sometimes hard to get out of bed? I, I knew that when I was working, that at near the end of my... Um, work life where I was working previously, there were moments when my phone was blowing up with emails and text messages, my alarm was going off to get up, and I was like, I don't want to go in today because I was so heavy with sorrow. So let's review this. Jesus is troubled and overwhelmed with sorrow. He invites his friends to join him, and he seeks solitude and prays. The disciples are exhausted with sorrow. They go with their closest friend, and they fall asleep three times. It's fascinating. Jesus sought out solitude in order to pray and listen, and it prepared him to respond without aggression, but love and compassion to his friends and to his enemies. He said, you will all fall away. They were doing that the moment they fell asleep and he was calling them to prayer. And yet he came and found them and still responded with compassion and love. The disciples fell asleep due to their sorrow and so responded when tempted with aggression and with fear. In Luke 21, Jesus paints a picture of the end of the age. In verse 23, he says, there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people they will fall by the sword and be, they will be taken as prisoners. This is happening today. We, we don't feel it so much living here in California, but it's happening in the world today. It, we're only separated by geography. Goes on to say, men will faint from terror, apprehensive at what is coming on the world. In verse 28, Jesus says, when these things begin to happen, just when they begin to take place, he says, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Isn't this what Jesus modeled for us when he spent time in solitude and prayer? In the garden, he's standing his head up, knowing that his redemption is drawing near. Even as his closest friends disappointed him, even as he faced his accusers and those that beat him and eventually took his life. We have the luxury of reading this and looking back in history. But if we were there, how many of us would have succumbed to the temptation to jump to his defense 
or how many of us would have run in fear. These were not the things that Jesus taught them to do. He was modeling something different. Solitude, silence, and stillness prepare us to go into the world with compassion, and they create in us the capacity to hold on to his peace. And this is not meant for us to create our sanctuary on earth so that we're free of troubles. So I fly a lot now. I travel a lot um, and do this training. And not long ago on a flight back from Nashville, I was really tired and I deliberately, I'm one of the first ones on the plane because I fly so much, and I deliberately picked a seat in the back because I thought, I want to be as quiet <laughs> and alone as I can on this flight back home. I eventually gave up my seat to an elderly couple who, because I gave up my seat, they could sit together, and I thought, I'll go sit somewhere else. There was one seat left. Last seat on the plane, back row, next to a single parent with an infant and a six-year-old. And I thought, this is not going to be the quiet flight home that I was looking for. Not long into the flight, the single mom asked me what I do, and I explained that I train people who work with potentially aggressive and violent people. She looked towards her children and said, maybe you can help me with these two. <laughs> so I explained how we focus a lot of our training on self-control and helping caregivers to look deeply into this whole area of what upsets them and what moves them away from their own self-control. She then asked a truly beautiful question. She said, what would you say are the three most important things for someone to know about this? Which was weird, because I just wanted a quiet flight home, and I was like, <laughs> tell us, you know, tell me what, what's important about what you do. So my flight home was becoming much more interesting than I imagined and eventually her six-year-old girl was sitting on my lap as we made the journey home. So this is Trinity. I'm really tired in that picture. Um, which is funny, don't you think that her name is Trinity? And for some reason she's flashing a peace sign? Like, I don't know, is there a meaning in that? So I thought to myself, this was part of being awake and seeing God everywhere present, as one writer wrote. I spoke to her about what feeds my soul, the things that create greater capacity to deal with the troubles in my life, even the unknown troubles, the troubles that have yet to touch my life. Silence, solitude, and prayer, walking quietly, truly creating space to be quiet in order to hear God. These disciplines or practices prepare me for the troubles that Jesus said we would face. For many of us, it can feel as though we're living out that scene from I Love Lucy in the Chocolate Factory. You guys know that scene? You can YouTube it if you're too young. Um, except it's not funny when it's happening to us. The conveyor belt just keeps bringing more and more, and it seems to be picking up speed with no concern or care for us. And it takes practice and discipline to be still. Often it can be terrifying to quiet all the distractions 
just like it was for all the kids I worked with. To just be in our own skin with no agenda, but to be with God. But this is what Jesus modeled for us, and it's what Scripture calls us to do. So, driving a car when it's overheated, some of you said, yes, you've had that experience. I have. I know it's overheating because I can see steam coming out of the front of my car. So I accelerate, hoping that the increased wind will cool my car down. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? That's, that's not what you do? Okay, so I don't do that either. Um, so I pull over. I know there's a problem, so I pull over. I open up my hood. I see it's the radiator, so I put my hand on the radiator cap, and I take it off. No? Because I'll burn my hand, right? From experience. So I go to my car, and I get a rag, and I put that on the cap, and I start to twist off the cap, right? If I do that, what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, there'll be a sound. It'd be me screaming. <laughs> so, right, the pressure, and I've done that before. I've, because I'm in a hurry, I have to be somewhere. I put a rag on that cap, and I start to turn it, and I can feel the pressure building. Like, it's looking for a place to escape. But I know if I take that cap off, I'm going to get burned. So I leave the cap on, and I have to wait for it to settle and be still. That's an important concept. Many of us know this about a car. We don't know it so well about ourselves. And though we don't have steam coming out of the side of our heads like a cartoon to say we're overheating, we know that there are signs that tell us when we're emotionally overheating. If you don't know, ask your loved ones. I'm sure they will be happy to tell you what you do. Psalm 62, verse 1 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. I love this verse. It's a statement. For God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 5 of 62 is almost the same verse, but it has a much different meaning. It says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. It's a command. Mother Teresa said, listen in silence because if your heart is full of other things, you cannot hear the voice of God. Over the past year, I've been honored to meet with a woman in her late 60s. She was born with dwarfism, and over the course of her life, she had back surgeries which left her with chronic and severe back pain. She used a little scooter to move around and lived in a small apartment which she hardly ever left. She was also addicted to pain medications which she supplemented with alcohol. Because of this, it wasn't uncommon for her to fall asleep in the midst of our meetings. My sister-in-law had suggested that we meet because this woman was hoping to deepen her relationship with God and was quite bitter about her circumstances. When we first met, her biggest question was, why? Why is this my experience? Why has this been my life? <coughs> I imagine some of you asked that question also. She also often wondered, when will this suffering end? 
We spent a lot of time talking about the Gospels and the Psalms, and we prayed. Sometimes we just sat quietly listening, trying to quiet our hearts and our minds so that we could hear the still, small voice of God. I remember sitting with her one afternoon, sitting quietly with a lit candle, when suddenly I could hear a siren from a fire truck approaching and getting louder and louder until it began to fade. So if you can imagine, we're trying to find some peace and it gets interrupted by a fire engine. Afterwards, I asked her about that and how she experienced that interruption, and she said it made her so angry, which we, all, we thought was kind of funny because the whole idea of sitting quietly was to be able to sit through disruptions, but we were just practicing. As we moved through the year, I began to notice a change in her. She was still in pain. In fact, most of her circumstances were unchanged. However, she was changing. She stopped asking why, and she began to be grateful for the people and the circumstances in her life. Her apartment was constantly full of prayer and music. And although she, she still hoped her pain and circumstances would change, she seemed to have been transformed. The why was less important, and she began to see how she could support others. She, too, was waking up. She had become a grateful person, and she saw herself as a beloved child of God. She was courageous, or maybe she was desperate enough to reach out and ask for someone to walk with her in her spiritual life. Just like a personal trainer for physical fitness, it's essential for us to seek out someone to act as a personal trainer for our souls. Some of you might resist this idea of being still and seeking solitude. Some will think there's no time in the day or that it's only for some or someone else, but not you. Some may crave this, but you may need support in navigating your way into solitude and silence and stillness. Jesus seems to have thought it was important for him and important for his followers. R.S. Thomas writes, I, I love this quote, he says, the silence holds with its gloved hand the wild hawk of the mind. As I said, I've been asking people as I prepare for this message, I've been asking people what they thought Jesus meant by do not let your heart be troubled. On Monday, June 29th, just after he left ICU, Patty and I had a brief visit with Ben Black. I spoke about this message and I told him I've been thinking about him every time I begin to write my thoughts about do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And without hesitation, Ben looked at me intently he tapped his finger on his bedside table and quietly yet firmly said, fear has no place here. And this is how you shout hope to the troubles of your life. When the mind is brought to stillness, we see that we are the mountain and not the changing patterns of weather appearing on the mountain. The psalmist says to be still and know that I am God. The message version of that says, step out of the traffic, take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything. 
So let's practice. We worship together in song. We learn together. We study together. We eat together. Now we're going to sit in silence together. So, I'm going to walk you through this. It will be painful, I promise. No, it won't be. For some of you, it might be. So what I want to ask you to do is to just sit kind of alert in your chair and put both your feet on the ground and your hands can be folded on your lap or just anywhere you're comfortable. And I just want you to try to be present as much as you can. Not so much focused on me, but just be here in this chair with God. I'm going to walk us through this psalm. So what I want you to do is take a nice deep breath and let it out slow and just feel yourself sink in your chair. Just feel the weight in the chair. And if you have thoughts during this time, just let them pass like they're clouds. You're the mountain. Your thoughts are just passing. Don't get stuck on them. And just let these words sink in. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. There's something powerful about being still there's, when you're alone, but there's even something more powerful when you sit as a congregation and you just allow the peace of silence and solitude to roll over you. So thank you for this time. Um, would you stand with me? We're going to take some time to extend the peace, just like we always do at this point. Um, this a, Jesus said that he gave to his disciples, my peace I give to you. So we're going to claim this truth for each other and for ourselves. And so we're going to change it a little bit today. I'd like you to extend the peace of Christ to someone, but you might find someone who's right next to you or someone who's across the room that needs to hear your redemption is drawing near. Or you just may need to claim it for yourself that my redemption is drawing near.
So may the peace of Christ be with you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.